Hello, I'm Joanne Diaz. And I'm Abram Van Ingen. And this is Poetry for All. In this podcast, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. Today, we are delighted to have Brenda Cardenas as our guest. Brenda is the author of Boomerang and From the Tongues of Brick and Stone. She is an editor of multiple volumes of poetry, including Resist Much, Obey Little, Inaugural Poems to the Resistance, and Between the Heart and the Land, Latina Poets in the Midwest. She was appointed the Poet Laureate of Milwaukee, Wisconsin from 2010 to 2012, and she was one of the 2021 faculty members at the Canto Mundo Latinx Writers Retreat. She is Associate Professor of English at the University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee, and Brenda, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so pleased to be here. We would love to discuss your poem, Our Lady of Sorrows. Would you be willing to read that poem for us? You bet. Our Lady of Sorrows. Our Lady of Sorrows has appeared to the mountain dwellers, her grief engraved where stone softens to clay. Keep your eyes sharp for a dagger. In its hilt, you'll find her face pressed to the earth's cheek. Kiss this sacred spot before the rains wash it away like her orphaned feet. Notched heart cradles a planet heavy with nightmares flying into empty mouths. Listen for their thirsty murmurs. She'll push her ponderous child into the dew of a San Felipe dawn, name him Salvador. They'll rest beneath a web-spun umbilical, eclipsed from our human eyes. Our Lady Stone, clay, earth, rain, orphaned heart, eclipsed. That's so good. Thank you. So, Brenda, could you say a bit about this poem, which is an ekphrastic poem? It's inspired by an art object by Anna Mendieta. Could you tell us a little bit about the inspiration for this work, a bit about her as an artist. Yes, definitely. So I'm, in general, I've always been drawn to the media of performance art and earth or earthworks, body works, to the ephemeral quality of that kind of work. And with earthworks to their recognition of human beings as part of nature rather than separate from it. So I've written poems responding to several such works by Ana Mendieta and by other artists as well. But to speak to my obsession with Ana Mendieta, uh, I, I will provide some, some background information on her, on the artists, because in this poem and in other poems, I not only respond to the artwork itself, but I incorporate allusions to her life. Um, she was born in Havana, Cuba. After the Cuban Revolution and the Bay of Pigs invasion, thousands of Cuban parents began sending their children to the United States with the encouragement and the help of the United States government, the Catholic Church, and an organization of U.S. businesses which funded the travel, the children's travel. In 1961, through this effort, which they called Operation Peter Pan, 
Mendieta's parents sent her and her sister into exile in the United States. And in an interview with Lisa Montano, Mendieta said of this experience, and I'm quoting her here, my sister and I were alone without speaking English, having been placed in a Catholic orphanage run by nuns in Iowa. It was a very devastating experience because I felt alienated and totally misplaced, a culture shock. Anna spent the next several years moving between foster homes, orphanages, and juvenile correction facilities. And despite this, she became a United States citizen in 1970, ironically, not out of any sense of belonging to the country, but rather so that she could travel outside of it. Some of her work she did in Mexico and in Cuba. She eventually created over 200 ephemeral pieces in which she engaged the earth as her sculptural medium. I first became enamored with early pieces, like her Tree of Life series, where she merged her physical body with the earth. Those led me to later pieces like the Silhouette series, of which the, the photograph that I wrote this poem in response to is, is one of the Silhouette series. And in that series, her body became like a template to mark her silhouette on dirt, grass, sand, mud, snow, rock, gravel, ice. A number of art historians and critics read her work as purely autobiographical or therapeutic responses to the development and loss that arises from her exile. And to be fair, Mendieta herself often points to her exile as the impetus behind her work. In 1981, she said, this insistence of communion with nature has to do with reaffirming my ties with my homeland, as well as my identification with the spirits of my ancestors and my ancestors' identification with the land itself. But she also says of her Silhouette series, using my body as reference in the creation of these works, I am able to transcend myself in a voluntary submersion and total identification with nature. My art is the way I reestablish the bonds that unite me to the universe. All the sculptures are human scale, thus visualizing the body as an extension of nature and nature as an extension of the body. So these notions about her work have always resonated with me, um, the things that she had to say about her own work. And then I found this amazing book by art historian Jane Blocker called Where is Ana Mendieta? And I think it's, for me anyway, from what I've read, the most insightful analysis of Mendieta. Blocker points out that Mendieta's earth as womb is both maternal and sexual, is not only homeland, but also prehistoric origin linked to ancestry, burial site, and sentient being. And that, in Blocker's words, it is always also the subject of national, political, and patriarchal claims deeply tied to colonial resistance. Blocker writes that by persistently referring to herself as homeless, Mendieta performs in the limen, not only between nations, but between ethnicities, races, and identities. She unmoors notions of belonging, borders, margins, and centers. I've always been drawn to the spaces between, whether I'm writing ecrastically or not. I'm always drawn to the notion of spaces between, to the limen, to the liminal. 
And Mendieta's work becomes extremely powerful for me because it ultimately resists being defined by any nation. It's sort of the non-national. And in doing so, it erases borders. And also because it integrates life and death into a continuum. And that becomes especially resonant given her short life. Sadly, when she was only 36 years old, eight months after marrying the sculptor Carl Andre, she was found dead on a rooftop 34 stories below the window of Andre's New York City apartment. So that background is so rich and complex that it's almost impossible for me to engage with her artwork without engaging with her, right, with her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so my poems, they're an effort to understand it and her experience. Mm-hmm. Um, they're an imagining of what more she might say. And they're an invocation of her, what I feel is her deeply inspiring spirit. Yeah. That's amazing. And, you know, for people who are listening to the podcast, they are not going to have the the photograph of this particular piece in front of them, but maybe just to describe it, it's a black and white photograph of one of her pieces from the Silhouette series, and it looks like an outline of a body engraved into the side of a hill or a mountain. Is that how you would describe it? Yeah, I, I to me, it looks like that, too, like a body resting on its back with the stomach up or I also, to me, it also looks like it could be a knife. And I, that's why I think at some point I say, keep your eyes sharp for a dagger. Yeah. So I think we can, you can look at that and, you know, if you're sort of doing the ink blot thing, (laughs) you can, you could see it either way, but it, it looks more like a body. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious in your moves in this poem, there are parts where you're, uh, using a kind of command, so keep your eyes sharp for a dagger, kiss the sacred mm-hmm. spot, and then other parts where you pull back, so so you move from there to notched heart cradles a planet heavy with nightmares mm-hmm. flying into empty mouths, and then to a she, and then to a they. So I'm curious how you imagined the moves you were making in this poem as you put it together. I think it begins with the directive, as though I'm saying to other viewers, or to myself, look for these things, mm-hmm. watch for this, look at this. And it, it does those commands throughout much of it. But then notched heart cradles a planet heavy with nightmares flying into empty mouths. In the photograph where the figure's stomach would be, it's like caved in, mm-hmm. but, and the, but the piece of earth that's on top of it is protruding. Mm-hmm. So it almost yes. looks to me like the figure is holding, could be holding the world. Mm-hmm. That could be a womb. And we speak so much of the womb of the earth in her work, right? And that could be the like holding a child in a womb, mm-hmm. right? And so I saw that as, as both things. And, you know, the planet heavy with nightmares, I think speaks to, in general, the kind of state we're in with the earth, mm-hmm. with climate change, mm-hmm. and with the the age of extinction that we're living in, but but other nightmares as well. At the time that I was writing this, I had also happened to read a news story about an art. It was an article about pregnant indigenous women in Oaxaca, Mexico, being turned away from a rural health clinic 
because it was understaffed and one woman having to give birth to her son on the lawn mm. outside the hospital. So the figure in Mendieta's photograph looking like it could be pregnant and that story began to merge for me. And it's wow. horrifying, right, that this woman had to give birth outside in the grass. And at the same time, it's horrifying, but at the same time, there's something sort of beautiful about that child being born right onto the earth. And so those things were mixing in my mind. And so where I say, and then she'll push her ponderous child into the dew of a son, Felipe Don, name him Salvador, that alludes to that story I read. Because the, the woman actually named the child Salvador, which he means savior. And so I don't expect my reader to know that. I don't expect my reader to know the news story. It's for me, those things were already intermingling. And so when I saw this figure in the photograph as either carrying a world where her belly would be or being pregnant, those two things came together. And maybe that's why I moved away from the command there. Yeah. And so it might be that there I needed to, I, I stopped after listen with the commands because I needed to, I wanted to look to some some future. I love that you use the future tense because it takes on a, a almost a prophetic tone. Like you mm -hmm. say, it's it's a future telling voice and the authority that comes with that and the way it makes us capable of visualizing a whole other reality is amazing. Mm -hmm. And for listeners who are thinking about how ekphrasis works, yes, of course, it can be descriptive, but it can also be argumentative. It can be meditative. Other elements can filter in to be in conversation with the artwork. Mm -hmm. And I feel like those lines that you just described do that really nicely. I think the best ekphrasis moves beyond description. If we yeah. don't if we don't move beyond description, then we might as well not write the poem. We might as well just go look at the artwork. Mm -hmm. right? Um, right? And so I think the best ekphrasis is in conversation or in correspondence in some way with the artwork. And it does do some description, but then again it moves beyond that and it analyzes or it it imagines what might happen just off the canvas, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Even as we're sort of beginning to prophesy and predict a move towards this future where there's a kind of birth, where there's there's even, there's a kind of hope in that, right? Pushing this child into yes. the dew of this dawn. And then behind that is all this, this erasure. I mean, it's a beautiful meditation on Ana Mendieta, of course, who did all these performance pieces and other pieces that were meant to be ephemeral, that were meant to be erased, mm -hmm. that were meant to disappear. And of course, in your own poem, you revisit the first part and, and much of it is, is in a certain sense washed away. But the words that remain are, are so powerful. And so I wonder if you could just speak about how you move from that first part and then into the second with this erasure of most of the poem, except for a few key words that return. One of the reasons I did the erasure in the second part was to speak to the way that her work is ephemeral, that it will all be washed away. This is carved in stone, so this might take a little longer, but she also did works on beaches where all, all you needed was the tide to come in mm. and it was gone. And so that my first impulse was to do that in order to respect the ephemerality of the work. But, you know, I know you're asking why those specific words, you know, how is it that you chose what you were going to leave, which is always the question with erasure, mm -hmm. right? 
And, and for me, it was this idea that I spoke about earlier when I was, when I was quoting her and Blocker about her union with the, it's more than a union with the earth. It's uh, this recognition, right? That we are part of the earth, that we are part of nature, that we are creatures like all other creatures that we talk about as being in nature, as though nature were something separate, right? And that there is no separation. So I chose words, stone, clay, earth, rain, right? Mm -hmm. The words that are the nature words. Mm And then orphaned because she was orphaned, yeah. right? She was orphaned. And that's why, you know, earlier in the poem where I use orphaned, I speak of her orphaned feet. And the figure in the photograph doesn't have any feet, yeah. right? You don't see legs defined or feet defined. Um, and so in the earlier part of the poem, wash away like her orphaned, and I purposely broke the line there, right, to emphasize orphaned feet. But then I brought orphaned back with heart because of the way in which her orphaned heart, that she felt that all her life, that exile eclipsed. And I guess with her death, that orphaned heart was in a sense uh, eclipsed. When I did the erasure, I put the words where they would have shown up in the line. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, they end up falling down the page, and she fell to her death. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was thinking about all those things when I was choosing which words would remain. Wow. Okay, that's incredibly helpful to me because now that I've heard you talk in some detail about what her work means to you, but also how she was thinking of herself in exile for so long. Mm -hmm. The way you described her orphaned heart, and then that final word, eclipsed, her orphaned heart eclipsed. There's a way in which she was a kind of orphan for so much of her life, Mm -hmm. but then that was eclipsed by what? By the work, by her relationship to the work, by what happened to what her work meant to people after her death? Like, is yeah. are you thinking about all of those layers as you do that erasure? I was probably thinking of the pain being eclipsed right upon death mm-hmm. that we don't have to think of, not that, oh, not in any way that I celebrate her death at all. I mean, she left the world far too, and it was a horrifying death. I don't mean it in that way, but death in general is another part of life. It's an extension of life, you know, uh, and there's there are other ways to view death besides the way that American culture views it. You know, I'm I'm also incredibly drawn to um, the the Mexican holiday of of Dia de los Muertos, and not because of you know the popularized, <laughs> commercialized milieu around it now, but because it's really about the fact that. We die, but we never really die, right? We go on, whatever you want to call it, depending on your beliefs, the spirit, the soul, or just matter, right, into the universe. Um, Or she goes on, Anamendiakta goes on by leaving her work. She's here. She's still here. She's still very present for me, you know? And so death just being a sort of another part of life. Dia de los Muertos, you light candles. You leave offerings because you want to invite the dead to come back. Knowing all what we know now, would you be willing to read this poem for us again? 
You bet. Our Lady of Sorrows. Our Lady of Sorrows has appeared to the mountain dwellers, her grief engraved where stone softens to clay. Keep your eyes sharp for a dagger. In its hilt, you'll find her face pressed to the earth's cheek. Kiss this sacred spot before the rains wash it away like her orphaned feet. Notched heart cradles a planet heavy with nightmares flying into empty mouths. Listen for their thirsty murmurs. She'll push her ponderous child into the dew of a San Felipe dawn, name him Salvador. They'll rest beneath a web spun umbilical, eclipsed from our human eyes. Our Lady, stone, clay, earth, rain, orphaned heart, eclipsed beautiful that's beautiful thank you for more information about brenda cardenas and anna mendieta the artist who inspired this poem please visit our website at poetryforall.fireside.fm and you can subscribe to poetry for all wherever you get your podcasts and please be sure to follow us on facebook instagram or twitter thank you for listening and thank you so much brenda for joining us today thank you for having me 